death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name's Maya Shioji. Um, I'm a Garigari woman from Broome. I decided to be part of this so that... Um, that we tell our story. My name is Judyanne Edgar. I am Garajadi woman. Um, my grandfather's Yarrow, so that makes me Yarrow as well. So Maya, you grew up in a mix of cultures. You've got, um, uh, you know, sort of indigenous cultural side to you, but you've also got from your father a very different cultural mix. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, my father's Japanese and um, my mother is traditional Aboriginal lady. Um, so my mum and dad have, like, totally different sort of backgrounds. I really don't understand how you guys got together. One man got to talk Japanese and you speak English, broken English, and my father didn't know one aspect of English, actually. How did you guys get together, Mum? As a traditional woman... Um, coming from uh, a very strong father who held that role, I was promised from the day I was born to a person who was the right skin group to me. And I grew up as a child knowing who that person was living up on the hill in Broome. Even though the families were small. I already knew he was my promised man. The day you were born, that is, and your father will find the right person for you. But sometimes it's not his choice because it is the skin grouping which we have. And here's my right skin group to be married to, and that's how it goes. Um, all my sisters and uh, are the same. What changed for you then if that was what was going to happen, that was the tradition? As I was in my teens and um, I noticed Maya's father and I was very interested in him, even though the communications wasn't, it was more, more about the looks and feelings. And I approached my dad and I said, um, I'm interested in uh, Shioji. And he said, no way because he had a protocols to go through and that was to make sure everything was right. So he had to contact my promised man who lived in Derby at the time with his wife. I would have probably been the second wife, the young one. So I had to wait for two weeks, waiting for him to come to Broome to see my dad. It was terrifying. My life decision was going to be a different journey and I didn't want it. So anyway, he came. He could not come to the house because my mum was 
his Malignano, which is mother-in-law. He had to be parked on the other side of the road where my father would approach him. And he had his wife sitting next to him. And she had no choice in the matter as well. She would have to accept me into that relationship if I wanted it that way. If I said, yes, I'm going to live with you. So, of course, being young and um, what my mother used to call me, stubborn. And you still are? I, well, as soon as my dad had stopped talking to him and told him what um, wanted done, I went over to speak to him. His wife sitting in the car, you know, I have no choice. I have to do it. There's no, there's no way around it. What my father says, it goes. But I went there and I said, no, I'm not coming with you. I will run away from you. I will cause you a lot of griefs. I was only young. And I did. I And then I went back home and crossed the road to my parents waiting on the veranda and um, he came, dad went back to see him and I was standing not too far and he says, no, I can't take him, that girl. You know, I'm old. It'll make too much trouble for me. You let him go. You know, that's his wife. um, That's what you want to do, you know, let him go. And anyway... He, um, my father took that in hand because that was cleared in the Aboriginal ways that the man had said, no, he won't receive me. And then my father came back and then said, go and get that man to come back here to meet me. Shioji. Shioji. Well, you know, he said, get that man. And... I sent a message. I didn't move. I just sent a message with with someone at the time. I can't remember. And he, obviously loving me, was going. He came walking down the streets to to our house, and my father said to him, gave him a few words of advice of how he should I should be treated, and said, "Now to me, this is your husband." So in that sense, he was my husband from the day he walked in. My father said yes. So you couldn't communicate with each other and yet you you made this promise? Not very clearly because <laughs> his English wasn't good and um, trying to communicate sometimes I would, I think I was brought up as a child to listen to men and trying to work out what he was saying to me sometimes. It was very difficult. But somehow we got through that. Yeah, our arguments or disagreements, not arguments, more of a disagreement on things were quite funny, I think, to myself when I think about it now. Because sometimes when he used to be trying to get things across and it didn't come out very well in English, he would just give it to me in Japanese and I, in return, would give it to him back in Aboriginal. (laughs) (laughs) Dad still didn't have good English when he was older. Yeah, so his English only improved when my children came along, to be honest. No choice. (laughs) Yes, but love, you know, it just break down barriers. Mm. 
And so, so children came along. And Maya, Maya, you're the eldest of a brood of how many? Three of us. Mm-hmm. And what was it like for you growing up with this intense cultural mix? I think I was very lucky growing up, though. Um, Dad was, because he was a pearl diver, he was out for, like, months at a time. Um, uh, oh, I grew up with my grandparents. They took me a lot um, out in the country. So I actually learned a lot of um, uh, the country, fishing, camping, and the land, actually, and going uh, to places where a lot of other children don't actually get a chance to. And I'm from my father's side. Um, when Dad used to come in, um, he used to sing to us in Japanese. So it's a pity that I can't remember the um, nursery songs that they used to sing to me <laughs> because I tried to the other day and I was like, nope, that doesn't sound right. So it was, it was um, different. Um, but actually it was just normal too as well because in Broome it's a multicultural sort of community. So you, you're brought up with all these different Asian ethnic groups here in Broome and then you also had the traditional or the Aboriginal Aboriginal um, um, culture as well. When everything else was happening in Australia at the time, I think we were one of the luckiest places to be in Broome because it didn't um, affect us as much as other places, the, the, the separation too much of different people. Yeah, because I don't think I ever grew up with racism much too as well. No. No, that's no. Because everyone knew each other. I, as a child too as well, I do remember um, or when they used to have law time and all the kids used to, like we used to go and sit down near Crab Creek side and um, watch all the men come back from law time and the dancing and the singing and the wailing and the crying and, and, and it was great. I just remember being under a blanket and listening to the, the, the men coming in and their feet stumping on the ground. God, I was a little girl. That's a memory and a half. Yeah. That was my life. Yeah. But I, I, I had a taste of it as growing up. I was actually pretty lucky to be there when the, all that stuff happened too as well. Didn't happen very often. Doesn't happen as often now these days too as well. No, we're bringing it back. Mm. As a child growing up with a very strong... Um, leader, my father, um, where everything was very traditional. You know, we could go out into the country not too far to one mile, which is called Billingur, and practice our singing, cultural stuff before law time. I think that's something that what the children miss is the songs, the song lines. What had changed about being in mm. room? Where, as a child, we could go out and, you know, it wasn't like don't have telephone or anything. It was just word of mouth that we would be meeting over at um, Billingor, which is where the one mile is, and going through the bush um, where the clearings were made. And all the song lines and the dancing and painting um, were ha- happened and the community of the broom people would come mainly Aboriginal people not the other other tribes so and I grew up with that with the song lines the song the dancing and somewhere in there's a recording somewhere which I I I love and I think I remember that song which we don't sing anymore 
And, and um, one of the things we're doing is trying to get that back. But that's another story. Maya, let's talk a little bit about Graham because that was uh, not your first experience, but it was certainly your first experience of actually organising a traditional, uh, full-on cultural funeral for your grandma, who was an elder. So I really didn't want to do it, but I had no choice because I was being told for many years that I would do it because I wasn't the eldest. So I um, actually took it on because um, I felt obligated and also in a certain sense I did want to do it because of all my experiences in the past but it was um pretty um pretty nerve-wracking taking that responsibility because when you're having to take the responsibility to do a traditional cultural funeral especially when I didn't know all the different aspects of and all the different steps of a traditional funeral it um kind of was a bit of a shock to me too as well. Even though I was exposed to it as a child, I didn't know all the other stuff. There's different sort of aspects in the background that you had to actually understand too as well that had to be done. And and why was it that you, as her grandchild, when she had living children, your mum and your mum's siblings, why was it that you were given that responsibility rather than them to, to, to you know, sort of say her final goodbye? Because it, um, the, the children had to, you guys had to grieve. You guys weren't allowed to do anything. It's traditional for you guys not it's to It's traditional for a child to grieve and for the grandchildren to take over. It's just like, that's how it was. And we... That's how it always was. I, 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 for other people, it's different, you know. Um, the, the child would take on the responsibility of the parents. But in my culture, it's not part of us. We don't have any claim to the possessions. Our job is to grieve and be seen grieving to honour our mother. But I also think it also had to do with the fact, you know, how Gran and Jamboru used to look after us as kids and then in a certain way we gave back and looked after them when they passed away. So it's the kind of tradition that kind of followed the next generation. But it's also to do with the skin grouping. Yeah. Only the certain skin groups from the person who had passed away can do the funerals and everything else. The other families of the different skin group mm. have to be seen grieving. You know, when some people pass away here, you see all the conflicts within the family and how things should be run. And I think sometimes traditional way it's good because there's no conflict. You have a job, this is how it's done, no one else get a say, and that's how it's done. It, it's, it's run that way, the ceremony is done that way, so there is no conflict. You're grieving, mm. but the conflict is worse than... You know, how he's going to be buried. Where is he going to be buried, that person? Yeah. And that's what's happening at the moment yeah. because we've lost that traditional way and the young people, sorry, I've just been noticing that they feel that they have the right, it's my father, it's my mother, I have the right to have a say. Mm -hmm. And some people want to be traditional and say, no, you don't have, and it becomes a conflict. And it's really sad to see that. To see when someone dies, the worst in people do come out. Yes, it does. And in a traditional way, you don't have time for that because you, you're not part of that. 
I get a feeling that when I get older and um, an old woman, <laughs> God forbid, and um, my grandchildren, I'd actually just turn around to my daughter and say, yeah, let them do it, see how they go. And that would probably stop and say, Tom, um, tell Isabel and Levi, you guys got no say, let them do it. Mm. Because it does, it stops the conflict. It does. So, Maya, it seems like there are really defined roles, but your job was a very different job. So, so talk, talk us through that and what it felt like. How old were you when you had to do this? So I'd been about, what, 35 years old when Grand passed away. So when she passed away, um, being told that I was going to take the lead in doing this cultural funeral, I felt very nervous. Um, I wanted to make sure that I did it right. So I had to sit back and think about all the different things that made a traditional cultural funeral done properly. Um, I've been exposed to it as a child. In a certain sense, when Grandma was getting old, I actually had to sit down and talk with um, some of the uncles, not all of them. Um, that you, you don't really talk to uncles, Mum. And I had to talk to my aunties and say, um, uh, what, what do I have to do? Do I have to talk to anyone? Do I have to get anything organised before Grand passes away? And they go, well, this is what you have to do, but make sure you don't do anything, you don't start doing anything until after Grand passes away. And I was like, okay. But when she passed away, I had to think about who I'd have to contact, um, who would give me advice. So I had to go and see very other, um, other family members, uh, traditional family members who actually did a lot of cultural stuff and actually approach them and talk to them and ask them for their help. And then I'd have to go and see some elders um, in the family too as well to ask them, um, am I doing it the right way? It was, it was a, a full-on five days trying to get all that organised very quickly, even though the funeral was in two weeks' time. Lucky for Gran, she had lots of grandchildren. So I had to actually get all the grandchildren together too as well and um, certain ones I can actually get to do certain things, like they had to be the right skin group, as Mum said. So um, all the daughter's children could do it and grandchildren. And there's different aspects you have to, apart from organising, telling the other language groups or other towns that Grand had passed away because she was a very traditional woman, you also had to organise how to get them to broom if they were in this um, remote community. There was organising of uh, the grandchildren coming together to to uh, uh, the gravesite. Um, the women wouldn't do any of that. The men would do that. So I never went to the gravesite. I think the families came from all over the Kimberleys, even from Perth. There was actually people there I didn't even know who they were, that they came, that I was like, who are they? Because yeah. Brown was well known. But because some of them already knew who their skin group was, mm or is, sorry, that they might have to get to meet new family members. So it was a, a totally different sort of knowing going to church for funerals normally to the traditional, because that, I remember that was done for Jambaru, my grandfather, when he passed away, sorry, um, but it was never practised again until Gran. I noticed that. Not really. On the day of the funeral, there was a um, bit of uh, routine to it. So when Gran came, 
in the coffin to the church, took her out. We had big tarp there. Everyone was, we had the law bosses there and they direct people because that's not my job. Uh, I would just stood back and just what, let them take lead when we're at the gravesite and at the church outside. So they got them and people would come and they'd say, this skin group, your turn, mother-in-law's, sons, you cry over the coffin. And it was just not quite quiet crying. It's like full on wailing, letting your grief out, just full on. And then next person come and then we'd have the church service. And then we'd do it again after Gran was brought to the um, gravesite. There was the white sand put down for all the people who came out from the communities to sit down there in the skin groups. And then we did it again. Gran's coffin was put there and everyone cried over it again. We did the same thing. Then Gran was lowered. And then we had to say rosary. And then once Gran was buried and all the grandchildren had to tidy up the gravesite and more sand was put on top and then we had to cry again. So there's quite quite a few grieving over the coffin and gravesite that happened that day. We did that so that you let your grief and clear your Leon so that you feel better. You know, grieving is good. Crying and wailing, just let it all out so that you, you, you're you're grieving that person and letting them go. As a child growing up, the griefs of someone who's passed away would be the bloodletting, the women hitting themselves with whatever they had in front of them to have the blood coming out of their heads and crying and wailing. Why is that? Because that's a tradition. It's how it is. It still happened in some places. We don't do it now. The men and the women I have to be separated. We don't go, we don't sit with each other. When the body is put down, it's covered with sand. Then the grandchildren has, the women, the, the girls, have to come and place the sand on top of the uh, sand that's already on top, sorry, and and put their hands on top of the grave and smooth the sand down. And then they have to sit there and cry. The woman goes first, those ones. And then the men who are the grandchildren, they do that next. They don't go in together. Men are first and then when women finish it off. Mm. It seems that actually those rules and traditions are there for a reason, that everyone knows their place, everyone actually knows what to do. So even when you have 500 people or more at a funeral, actually there's there's a beautiful kind of symmetry that goes on, even though it may feel like chaos, and I'm sure at certain times, <laughs> Maya, it did feel like that. <laughs> Especially for uh, me. <laughs> yeah. And you have to sit because that's respectful. You sit on the ground. Mm. I sometimes forget that, you know, you're living in Broome where people just sit down on chairs and stand up and watch um, the funeral processions going through all that. Um, sitting on the ground for me is much more traditional than sitting on chairs and standing around at the cemetery. Well, there was a lot of just sitting on the ground. There was no... Chairs, even the old, um, older, all the elders, the old ladies, they'd, they'd rather sit on the ground too as well. 
It was the longest day of my life. We did yeah. the right thing. And you did. I was mm. very proud. So at the funeral too as well, once Gran, once Gran was um, set to rest and we had to tell everyone that we had to go. Before the sunset, we had to have a smoking ceremony. So the smoking ceremony had to be done somewhere else. We couldn't, we can't do it at the graveside because it got too many souls and <laughs> graves, graves there. So we had to go to another uh, place to do a smoking ceremony and told everyone, invited everyone back there to get smoked. The smoking ceremony signifies a cleansing for everybody? Yes. And my, the grandchildren and all that screen group would do the smoking ceremony and we had to cry over the gifts. So it's tradition in our traditional um, funeral to actually get gifts for those people who have travelled from far away. So we had many blankets. So we had to give out the blankets to all those and we had to make sure that who travelled from far first got those gifts and then we just handed out the rest to everyone that was there. So we had to acknowledge first those who travelled the furthest which was from maybe from inland, um, Northern Territory, down from Perth Bay, everywhere. So I had to give them the gifts first. And then another thing is that Grant's belongings also had to be um, given out to her children. So that was a really, not really easy thing to do, Mum, because all Grant's possessions, she had things that <laughs> was like... Who are we going to give this blanket to? Who are we going to give this smoke tin to? Who are we going to give this to? And then when we gave, <laughs> when we gave it out and you guys look at us and I was like, well, you guys sort it out yourself. What do you guys want? <laughs> you guys can work out yourselves after who you guys want and what. So that was a, we, did, we have no choice of whatever the children thought that we could have from our mother's uh, belongings. Um and you cannot argue. You cannot argue. You're not allowed to say, oh, that was, that's mine. I want that. Mm. No. That was if that the children though. gave it to us, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. You just, we do not argue about anything. That's probably why it's a really good, I think it's a really great reason why we don't. It, it does seem completely the right thing to do, which is that the grieving child, you, for your mother, who gave you life, that actually you're not in the best position to organise what is such a complicated funeral. And so it seems completely correct that actually you use that time to, to be able to come to terms with your loss. Absolutely. And you... I'm not just talking about my own immediate family, my own brothers and sisters. It doesn't go like that. It's the whole family, which is mum's family, which is my cousins. Well, we had set up a camp at my sister's place. Um, this is called the Sorry Camp. And all you do is sit and wait for two weeks while the children, Maya, and, and her troop of um, <laughs> my lackeys. I'm just joking. My millions. Just a um, while my um, organise her and Brendan and Chanel and um, that's my son um, organise themselves 
on what needs to be done. In the meantime, it's called sorry camp. We cannot do nothing. We have to sit and wait from morning till night, to late at night, waiting to, to greet people from the community or family or, and to be seen that we are grieving and not mm. to move. So can you imagine sitting for two weeks every day waiting <laughs> and hoping that our children, you know, we can sit there and discuss, uh, hopefully they're doing the right thing. You know, that's, we, we, we do that. We're just people. And I'm telling you now, I tried sneaky ways of trying to find out if they were doing stuff. And yet in, in our modern, fast-paced daily lives, a lot of people actually don't have that time to be able to just sit and contemplate the awesomeness of death. Uh, so in some ways, you know, the cultural practice really, really acknowledges that death is as important as the beginning of life. Maya, you had a very different experience when your dad passed away and you were uh, arranging his funeral. Can you talk us a little bit through that? My father's funeral was actually totally different compared to my grandmother's big entourage of all these different aspects to it. Because Dad was Japanese, he was also a Buddhist. So it was actually really simple compared to having to go through a four-hour sort of uh, routine with Grant's, you know, the schedule. Um, Dad's was really easy because he, because he was Buddhist, he was Japanese. All I did was just um, get advice from Dad's cousins who live in Broome here too as well. And um, all it was was getting in contact with the Buddhist monk who lived in Melbourne at the time actually and talked to him because he, he, was, he came to Broome quite a few times to do the Shinto, no, Obon Festival, which was actually simple because it was making sure that Dad had um, uh, a name he had to change his name. Was actually had to change um, once he was passed. He passed away, so they gave him another name, another Japanese name. And then on Dad's funeral day, it was just all the kids wore black and white. Um, uh, and Dad had uh, a few other children too, as well, apart from me, my younger sister Roko, and my younger brother Shino. Dad also had other children, so I had to get them involved and let them know what's happening. Um, Dad's funeral day was just take dad's coffin, walk with him, behind him, um, and just bury dad. And uh, they got someone to say eulogy at the gravesite. Uh, got the Buddhist monk. He was beautiful, actually. And um, he said these beautiful words of um, how being a Buddhist and the cleansing and how to reflect that the positiveness about death and life. So he had this very calming voice to him too as well. And then he'd say these prayers and he'd had the um, the bowl and he'd say be saying these prayers. And it was, I, I, at one stage I felt like I was going to bust out crying and wail. But once he started doing that, I was just so calm inside. And everyone participated in lighting our incense and saying a quick prayer. So everyone was involved in it in a certain sense at the funeral site. It was calming compared to doing a very traditional wailing, everyone getting up, 
making sure that we get to a certain place before the sunset, giving out the gifts. It was calming for the wake. It's just everyone came together. Uh, always here in Broome too as well. You, The community comes together and helps you with um, the catering side of it too as well. You just ask, people will make a dish, they come together and we celebrate the person's life. So there's always, you know, laughter too as well at the wakes. It's because you're celebrating their life too as Absolutely. well, the way we do it traditionally. You're, tradi- you're, you're respecting them by doing the traditional way as well and, and, and also passing on the traditions to the next generation, which is sad because I don't really see that happening traditionally a lot. So sometimes when I go to the graves, um, when I go to funerals now and I know that they're traditional, well, they're Indigenous families and they should be traditional, and sometimes I want to get up and actually go, you know, I say to you, oh, are they going to do that? Are they going to do the grieving? And they don't. And I just go, well, I'll do it after in my own way. I think I brought my children too much in their tradition, a traditional sense that um, they expect um, just that little bit of traditional, which they think it's much more, well, I think it's much more it's respectful, respectful to their person who has gone. Um, and also, once you let all your grief out, you go back, go back and think about all the good things, and that's a celebration of life that we have. And remember the good things that they have left you, mm. their wisdom. Well, from my mum's side, she was a very wise lady. She wasn't loud-spoken. She had a, such a gentle way of talking, which was much more... Mm, direct than a person who is yelling at me. And and just as mum talked to her grandchildren, talked to Maya about what she wanted, so it was almost like there was a preparation that was going on, uh, what she wanted for whenever it happened. <laughs> yeah, well, she was brought up as, as a child, poor old Maya, um, continually every now and then my mum would say, you are going to bury me. And you know what, Mum? I'm not the oldest. There is an older grandchild that was sitting there that should have been prepared for it instead of me. But old people see something in children that they pick them for a reason. So you don't have to be the oldest. They just know that that person is the one to do it. The eldest doesn't have to be the leader in things. The old people have this great way of choosing a child, they see something on them as soon as they're young. You know, I don't know how to do it, but hopefully I've got that. Um, To see something in a child, as a child growing up, to say that's the person who I have chosen to do this or that. When it's your time, Judy, do you feel that that, that, that you've prepared enough and that you, you have passed on what you want I think my poor grandchildren already know that. (laughs) So do you want a traditional funeral? Um, Let's wait and see till I think about it a little bit more. I have to really think about... How you want to go? No, my siblings, how they feel I want to go to as well. And that's another thing because they're your siblings and I'm the child. I won't have any say on how your funeral's being run. (laughs) Poor thing. Um, it's the best you do a will, eh? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just thinking about my father. 
His funeral, when he passed away, as a daughter, we just had to wait and sit and wait. Then the elders from the communities from Bidjidanga came up and we had to go down to One Mile, which is um, a traditional place where laws used to come through, um, boys going through art to law and sit under the sun, in the sun, waiting for the elders to come because we had word that they were coming in. And because they didn't speak English very well, they tried to, but my mum was there to negotiate, um, to interpret. But my mum said, no, you speak the language, my children know it. Because they, people used to think, because you live in town, English was your first language. No, it wasn't for us. And the, and the men, the tribal elders, came and told us how it was going to be and what was going to be done. And I did not go and see where they, they were going to bury my dad and how it was set up. Like Maya said, there was things that I could not do. And it was absolutely beautiful and awesome to see the different people from all around and how where they were sitting. And I just remembered something too as well. Because yeah. my partner is um, a white European man, I've gone to funerals for white men, sorry, got to say it that way. Um, their funerals are different compared completely to what I've done too as well. So it's like they go to a, a funeral parlour, they sit, they do the eulogy, they put up some photos, they have a cup of tea. They don't grieve the way we do. It's not only that. We don't have photos. There is no photos of our parents in the front of the books. Mm. And the names are not. We don't say their name anymore. Yeah. As part of that. So once that person passes away, you just don't say their name. And if no. someone's got the same name, you just call them Nyabro. Nyabro or... That's Nyabro is from the Des yeah. language. We say something, um, Maya for daddy. Oh, yeah. You just don't say the name. Yeah, say that, Eraro, that name for Eraro for Maya for daddy. Mm. Like Maya's daddy's name is such and such, Stephen. So I wouldn't be able to say the word Stephen anymore or my dad's name. Mm. So I don't say my father's name. It's a very hard thing to say. I don't say my mum's name. If I'm introducing her in a book or something, I would just call her Mrs. Edgar. So that's part of the death cycle, we don't say. And um, so much just change, people put photos in there and we don't because that's being respectful of the person who has passed away. Photos and everything should have been um, taken and put down. We didn't, I put dad's photo off the walls because, yeah, about that. yes. Yeah. I just remember, yeah, Gran and Jambaloo's, all the uh-uh. photos, names, their names. Everything never was again. taken down. Yeah, because that's been and because, respectful. And because Gran was in, well, sorry, known, you just reminded me. All her photos, all her video recordings, her name was told True. to everyone to not say her name, or her pictures yeah. to be until we publicized. clear it after yeah. she's passed away after so many years. I think because it was about asking us. Was it three, four years? Yep. So, so do you think that? As time goes on and, uh, you know, uh, different generations will take 
different aspects, the aspects that they want from funerals, that they want to be able to remember, rather than things perhaps that that are, you know, quite difficult and and may result in people going away feeling aggrieved. If you haven't been taught the traditional way, you won't practice it. So modern day time, it's actually the, the traditions are actually getting lost. Really, it's it's I don't see it being done now to in town. Yeah. Maybe in the communities they do it differently. Mm-hmm. And it's it's um, certain aspects are not uh, uh, done. Like probably the bloodletting, as you say, I have, I never saw that. I saw um, once where they cut themselves at the funeral because mm-hmm. um, I was prepared for that. But like traditional, traditional funerals, the way we do it up here, it's not done anymore. It's not done the right way. It's not um, in town. It's not practiced. You don't see it. They every now and then they do the crying over the coffin and the um, the gravesite, but they don't do it from the from the beginning to the start of you guys doing the grieving for two weeks, can't say nothing, and they don't do the um, where the grandchildren or the or the uh, siblings mm-hmm. the the organizing organizing it all. So Maya, given that you've you've experienced organizing two very different funerals uh, and two very different grieving processes, what would you want? I love some of those the aspects. I don't know if it'll be really traditional for me because um, it would be nice, but I don't think I, I'd want to put my grandchildren through that. I'd actually like it to make it easy for them. The Buddhist way was really nice. So she's me, got a choice. I do have a choice. I don't have to be. I am traditional but not traditional traditional because we live in a modern day. It's a really hard question because I'm not old and frail and wanting knowing what I want. <laughs> See, I might want to just be cremated and um, my ashes thrown out in the country and on at, at the sea because I, I live right next to the sea. I might just want to say, well, just um, uh, take my ashes, cry over my ash, um, my urn, uh, sing a song that I love uh, and have a big party after. Easy. Thanks for listening. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.